Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In recent episodes, we've been working our way through the book of Numbers. To remain united and survive their wilderness wanderings, the people must commit to the Mosaic law and set their focus upon the promised land of Canaan. We have seen mimetic rivalry undermine the community's mission as the people give in to their whims and cravings. In many ways, we see this same issue in our own lives. We lose sight of our larger goals to pursue some passing fancy. An example might be someone's commitment to healthy living and eating and being tempted to compromise this goal by eating junk food. To maintain a healthy lifestyle, we must consistently resist temptations and remain focused upon their end goal of health and happiness. As we continue our study in Numbers chapter 13, we will again see the community lose sight of their common end goal as Moses sends some of the tribal leaders on a reconnaissance mission to the land of Canaan. Let's pick up the story now in Numbers chapter 13, verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some fruit from the land." Now the time was the season for the first ripe grapes. Now they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Lebo Hamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Sheshai and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. The place was called the valley of Eshol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are all well able to overcome it. Then the people who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than us. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who had come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves as if we were grasshoppers, and so we must have looked like that to them. According to Moses' command, 
the elders bring back a report about the land and the people who inhabit it. The elders note that the land is indeed fertile and bring back beautiful fruit for the people to sample. The fruit is a little window into the condition of the land for those who couldn't go on the reconnaissance mission. As the people view and taste the fruit, their desire for the land will hopefully be invigorated. With regards to the feasibility of the mission, two different reports are given. Caleb encourages the people and urges them to set their desire upon the land of Canaan. However, the other elders discourage the people, claiming that the land itself will devour them while portraying the inhabitants as big scary monsters. In Jewish tradition, there is this idea that supernatural beings called the Nephilim, literally the fallen ones, procreate with human females to produce monstrous demigod-like offspring who found the ancient civilizations of Mesopotamia. Now, the elders tell the people that the descendants of these demigods currently inhabit the land of Canaan. Notice how the land is taking on a mythical type character, almost like the lair of the giants commonly seen in fairy tales. While Canaan is this fertile land flowing with milk and honey, it is also guarded by monstrous giants and fraught with danger. From a mimetic perspective, this monstrous portrait of the land's inhabitants is very significant. As we continue to read through numbers in the book of Deuteronomy, Israel's primary rival, Egypt, fades from view. In the book of Exodus, Israel engaged Egypt in a bitter rivalry to secure freedom from slavery. Having achieved emancipation, the people then set their desire upon the promised land of Canaan, which brings them into conflict with the Canaanites, who inhabit the land. This conflict prompts Israel and the Canaanites to become doubles of each other as they engage reciprocal violence to secure their grip on the land of Canaan. Although the outside observer might see these doubles as almost identical because they frantically imitate one another, each double views their own rival as an evil monster. The claim that the inhabitants of the land have descended from Nephilim emphasizes that Israel and the Canaanites are becoming doubles of one another. Throughout the Pentateuch, the Canaanites are portrayed as immoral monsters whose conduct forces the land to vomit them out. These monstrous portraits of Israel's Canaanite rivals are ultimately generated through the community's mimetic desire for the land of Canaan. How will the people respond to the elders' report? Will they follow Caleb's lead and allow their desire for the land of Canaan to drive their violence and mimetic rivalry? Or will they listen to the elders' word of caution and value safety and familiarity over the land of Canaan? At its core, the choice is one of risk and reward. The people set their desire upon freedom in Egypt and broke free from Pharaoh's yoke. Once again, the people must choose whether they are willing to risk their lives to achieve their desired object. Reading on now from chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. 
Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is exceedingly good. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. In their protection is removed for them, and the Lord is with us, so do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a greater and mighty nation than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought us up in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you will kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them and to kill them in the wilderness. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be as great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Here we have another account of Moses' death. You may recall that I read Moses' time on Mount Sinai back in Exodus chapter 32 as his scapegoating and subsequent deification at the hands of his community. If this sounds unfamiliar, check out season 3 episode 25 which considers the golden calf incident of Exodus chapter 32. After this incident, Moses takes on a godlike character and as Israel's scapegoat law-giving leader who satisfies the wrath of the primitive sacred, he works on their behalf. In this passage, we see the community again move to execute Moses when the glory of the Lord appears at the tent of meeting. The primitive sacred threatens to destroy the community, but Moses, as the community's scapegoat, manages to pacify the Lord's wrath. From a mimetic perspective, excessive mimetic rivalry within the community generates a mimetic crisis, which the people interpret as the glory of the Lord. Once the community band together and vent their mimetic rivalries upon Moses, they experience a transcendent peace and the crisis is halted. 
the community attribute this peace to Moses, their scapegoat, who reaches beyond death to bless the people. But how, I hear you say, can we have multiple accounts of Moses' death? And how does Moses continue to play a role in the narrative? It just doesn't make any sense. If he's dead, he's dead, right? Well, different traditions have developed their own account of Moses' death. In the Pentateuch, we see these traditions woven together and redacted to produce a cohesive narrative. Although the final forms of Exodus 32 and Numbers 14 remove Moses' death from the story, as we have seen, these texts still retain sufficient clues to identify both of them as different accounts of Moses' communal execution. Once we grasp Moses' role as the communal scapegoat who blesses his community by pacifying the primitive sacred, multiple accounts of his death become less problematic. After all, the scapegoat can only pacify the primitive sacred through his death, after which they become deified, straddling the boundary of life and death. Multiple accounts of Moses' death and his continuing involvement in the narrative emphasize his status as neither dead nor alive, but inhabiting both realms. If we can suspend our normal expectations of life and death, then we see how the narrative portrays Moses as the community's scapegoat, who straddles the boundary of life and death to pacify the primitive sacred on the community's behalf. Reading on now from verse 21. But truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. None of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked generation grumble before me? I have heard their grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me, saying to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for forty years, and shall suffer for your unfaithfulness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness." According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely I will do all this to the wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die." 
And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report about the land, died by the plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. In this passage, the primitive sacred is personified as an angry deity who rages against the people's lack of dedication to the Canaanite conquest. Their whims and cravings have distracted them from their common desired object, causing division and rivalry within the community. The elders' bad report and fear become contagious, spreading throughout the entire community. The primitive sacred slays these elders in anger. From a mimetic perspective, these elders die in a mimetic crisis. The crisis arises as people imitate the elders' negative attitude towards the Canaanite conquest and begin to grumble against the Lord. Throughout the books of Exodus and Numbers, we see this word grumble used to describe the community banding together against a potential scapegoat. The people never simply grumble about something, but they always grumble against someone. In other words, they're finding someone to blame for their plight, a scapegoat upon whom they can vent their mimetic rivalries. For example, in Exodus, we saw the people grumble against Moses on various occasions. When the people threaten to execute him, Moses diffuses the situation by giving them their whims or cravings, whether it be for water, food, or some other object. In Numbers chapter 14, however, the people grumble against both the Lord and Moses. In other words, the people denounce the Canaanite conquest to which the Lord has called them through Moses' leadership. In response to this grumbling, the primitive sacred becomes angry, slaying the elders and vowing to kill the rest of that generation before they enter the promised land. Of the elders who spied out the land, only Joshua and Caleb survived because they remained faithful to the primitive sacred, setting their desire undividedly upon the land of Canaan. We are told that both Caleb and Joshua are animated by a different spirit to that which inspires the other elders. Specifically, the exact same spirit which once animated Moses now burns and drives the desire of Joshua and Caleb. These two men have become possessed with a spirit of mimetic desire which fuels their fervent lust for the land of Canaan. Although the Lord will ultimately kill the distracted generation, the glory of the Lord will still fill the land. The next generation will manifest the glory of the primitive sacred when they set their desire upon the promised land and take it by force. The community will be forced to wander in the desert for 40 years. For some reason, time periods of 40, whether it be 40 days, weeks or years, function as liminal periods throughout the Pentateuch. You may recall that Noah and his family enjoy a liminal period of 40 days inside the ark before the waters recede and they step foot again on dry land. Their time inside the ark represents a liminal space for Noah and his family. Will they survive? What will life be like after the flood? The uncertainty of the liminal space is only resolved once Noah and his family set their feet on dry ground. 
As I mentioned in an earlier episode, the wilderness represents a liminal space for the Israelite community. They are no longer enslaved, but they are not yet an established nation living in their own land. The desert period of 40 years will see an entire generation die before another rises up to take possession of the promised land. The older generation's lack of focus upon their common desired object means they wander around aimlessly for 40 years, chasing various whims and cravings, but never finding the drive and motivation to seize the land of Canaan. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.